uh, just tell a brief story about perhaps one of the most significant promises made in the history of the church. The year was 1505, and a young man was returning back to college. He had been visiting his parents, and he was returning back to uh, the university where he was studying law. And on his way home, he was caught in a violent storm, and he truly thought he was going to die as lightning was crashing down around him, getting near him, and he truly thought that his end was near. And of course, being a good Catholic gentleman, he prayed to um, St. Anne, the patron saint of minors. His father was a minor, and so that's all, that's what he knew, pray to St. Anne. He doesn't, again, hadn't been really taught about praying to the Lord. But he prays, he says, St. Anne, if you will save me, I promise I will become a monk. Martin Luther survived that storm and entered an Augustinian monastery where he began to study. Twelve years later, in 1517, well, actually a couple years prior to that, he was translating and studying the book of Romans where he came to realize that the just will live by faith and that a man is justified by faith alone in grace alone by the works of Christ alone. And on October 31st, 1517, he uh, nailed, Martin Luther nailed uh, 95 arguments against the Catholic Church and he said this is a problem and thus began the Reformation. We could say it began with a promise made and significantly a promise kept, which is really amazing because how many times have you heard somebody say, hey God, if you get me through this, I swear. I swear I'll go to church every Sunday. And then we get through it and we don't go to church. Martin Luther actually swore to God and he believed that God saved him and he actually fulfilled his vow. So as we look into Numbers chapter 30, let me remind you and just give a bit of a review as to where we are, where we have been. We need to recall that Israel right now in in the, the timeline, Israel is on the border of the promised land. And if you look at my map, I drew a circle about where Israel was camped. They're in the plains of Moab, just at the northern end of the Red Sea, or I'm sorry, the, the Dead Sea. Um, they've been camped there for a while. Um, Moses is going to deliver a number of sermons to them as they're camped there. They're basically being prepared to enter into the promised land. Forty years of wandering through the wilderness. They're now on the banks of the Jordan River. Um, they're going to cross the Jordan River and they are going to begin to take possession of the promised land. But while they are there, Moses is going to... Um, give instruction to this new generation. Recall the first generation died in the wilderness. They died because of their rebellion to God. They died because they did not believe. They died because they grumbled against God out of their unbelief. And now this new generation is taken up, uh, has, has arisen, and this is going to be the generation that... Um, begins to dwell in the land of promise. And right now they're just outside 
um, the promised land, in the plains of Moab. And so what we're reading, what we've been reading, is about how to live in the promised land as the people of God. So before you get into the promised land, I'm going to give you instruction how to live as the people of God in this new place. You've got to remember, they've, been far- they've never farmed before. They're going to become agrarian. They are going to learn to raise crops. They have never grown a crop in all their life. They have never lived a sedentary life. They've never lived in a, in a city or in a town. They've never lived in a walled community. They've always been centered around a particular group with the Ark of the Covenant, with God in their presence. Now they're going to be scattered. How are we going to do this? How are we going to live this way? Moses is going to tell them. And so today's text has to do partly with how you live in the promised land. So let me give you a little bit of preview of where my uh, our text is going to take us today. It's really focused on making vows and oaths. What you say and upholding what you say, being truthful. There is a section also that I don't think we can um, overlook and it really has to deal with family unity. And so our two big themes today, as uh, we'll look at the text, we'll try to understand how it fits within uh, the time frame it was written, and then we'll try to uh, look at how do we deal with these aspects in our own lives today, and what merit does this, these words that were written in 1500 B.C., what possible relevance could a text written 3,500 years ago to people living in the Bronze Age have to do with me living in the Digital Age. And finally then, and ultimately, what does this have to do with Christ? How is Christ? How do we see Christ in all of this? So that's, that's where we're going to go. So um, let's, if you will, follow along with me as we read our text, uh, the book of Numbers, chapter 30. Um, And uh, it's a short chapter, only 16 verses, so listen to the inerrant word of God. Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of the people of Israel, saying, This is what the Lord has commanded. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. If a woman vows a vow to the Lord and binds herself by a pledge while within her father's house in her youth and her father hears of her vow and of her pledge by which she has bound herself and says nothing to her, then all her vows shall stand and every pledge by which she has bound herself shall stand. But if her father opposes her on the day that he hears of it, no vow of hers, no pledge by which she has bound herself shall stand and the Lord will forgive her because her father opposed her. If she marries a husband while under her vows or any thoughtless utterance of her lips by which she has bound herself and her husband hears of it and says nothing to her on the day that he hears of it, then her vows shall stand and her pledges by which she has bound herself shall stand. But if on the day that her husband comes to hear of it, he opposes her, then he makes her void her vow that was on her and the thoughtless utterance of her lips by which she bound herself, the Lord will forgive her. But any vow of a widow or of a divorced woman, anything by which she has bound herself shall stand against her. 
And if she vowed in her husband's house or bound herself by a pledge with an oath and her husband heard of it and said nothing to her and did not oppose her, then all her vows shall stand and every pledge by which she bound herself shall stand. But if her husband makes them null and void on the day that he hears of them, then whatever proceeds out of her lips concerning her vows or concerning her pledge of herself shall not stand. Her husband has made them void and the Lord will forgive her. Any vow and any binding oath to afflict herself, her husband may establish or her husband may make void. But if her husband says nothing to her on the day, then he establishes all her vows or all her pledges that are upon her. He has established them because he said nothing to her on the day that he heard of them. But if he makes them null and void after he has heard of them, then he shall bear her iniquity. These are the statutes of the Lord command that the Lord commanded Moses about a man and his wife, about a father and his daughter, while she is in her youth within her father's house. Lord, we give you praise and thanks for the word that you have given us. We understand that it is our sole authority and it is entirely sufficient. And so now we pray, Father God, that we would hear what you would have to say through this, your word. Amen. All right. So basically we're talking about... um, Vows and oaths. These um, vows and oaths, promises that we make are not rare. We daily seem to make promises, whether they are in business. Um, in fact, probably a lot of lawsuits that are dealt with are dealing with um, agreements. You said you would do such and such for such and such a price, and you did not do that. You either didn't do the job or you overcharged me, and so there is some sort of disagreement. You promised that you would charge me this much money to do this job, and you didn't do the job. You never showed up. I am now, you broke your promise. Or perhaps probably the the most solemn and most sacred of promises that we make are that in marriage. I promise before God and these witnesses that... I will live with you, cherish you, honor you till death do us part or we, quote, fall out of love or something like that. But we make contracts, we make vows, we make promises all day long. And nowadays it almost seems like, um, well, I shouldn't say nowadays, it's always been this way, that um, promises are as strong as our desire to keep them. In fact, even the Pharisees found ways to, uh, in Jesus' day, found ways to break their promises. You know, when we were kids, we would cross our fingers, right? I can't do that by my... We would cross our fingers when we made a promise, right? There you go. Thank you, crew. Um, We would cross our fingers, and that was a way of saying that I'm making this promise, but not really. And Pharisees had a way of doing that. We swear by the gold of the temple. Um, And Jesus rebuked them for that. We're always looking for loopholes to get out of the promises that we made. And that's what this text is about. So let's, first of all, begin by defining what, what, we, what the text is talking about. Let's define vows and oaths. Let's start there. What is a vow? What is an oath? Well, there's a lot of discussion and we won't get down into the nitty gritty. But for our purposes today, we're just going to uh, describe a vow as a promise to do something and an oath as a promise to abstain from something. So a vow would be a positive statement and an oath would be a negative statement. A vow is, I promise to do such and such. 
God, if you deliver me from my current crisis, I promise to go to church every Sunday. That would be a vow. An oath would be a promise to abstain from something. In other words, I'm not going to eat. I will fast until you bring about these purposes and uh, or bring about the answer to this particular prayer. So a vow is simply a promise to do something. An oath is a promise to abstain from something until God fulfills the request. So that's, a, in fact, a great um, example of this promise to abstain. We see in Acts chapter 23, you remember when Paul was being, uh, was under arrest and there were, there was a plot to kill Paul and there was a group of people and they, and they had vowed to abstain from eating till they killed Paul. And I always wonder about that, don't you? Because they never killed Paul. Did they die of hunger or did they break their vow? I have a feeling they broke their vow. They found some way around um, breaking their vow. But anyways, or I don't know, maybe they just starved to death. But that's a very uh, well-known oath that was taken to abstain from food until Paul was dead. So... Now that we have our definitions, let's talk a little bit about the importance of vows or oaths because I think perhaps maybe we've just diminished. Um, so, you know, a great example, you hear a politician say something and promise something and you really don't expect them to keep it. It's not like you're, you're surprised when they don't. In fact, you're surprised when they do keep their promise or their oath. Scripture doesn't see things that way. We should be surprised when people break their vows and their oaths. Look at what Ecclesiastes says. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. If you don't keep your vow, he considers you a fool. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not repay. See, a vow is not required. Nobody is forcing anybody to make a vow or oath. Once you do it, keep it. You are a fool and you would be better off not even to make the vow than to make it and not keep it. Look at what uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 21 through 23, listen to what Moses writes to the people. He says, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay in fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what is past your lips. If for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God, which you have promised with your mouth. Get this. It is a sin not to keep your promise. You are guilty. Now, again, you are not required to make any vow or oath. But once you do, you are obligated to keep it. God takes us very simply, now, or very seriously. Now, when we get to the New Testament, we see, and we've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount, we do have this idea where Jesus says, don't swear um, at all um, and, and make no oaths. And you can go back and look at YouTube and see how we dealt with that text. Um, basically, what Jesus is saying is this, let your yes be yes and your no be no. In other words, you and I should be people of such character. You know, it's just, you've heard it said, my word is my bond. That should just be characteristic of a Christian. That's just the way it is. If we say yes, it's going to happen. If we say no, it's not going to happen. It's just our yes is yes. People, 
We do not need to be people who say, I swear on a stack of Bibles. When somebody tells you they're swearing on a stack of Bibles, you can guarantee they're not serious about the vow or the oath they're taking. I swear on my mother's grave. I swear on... I swear to God. The Christians should simply be able to say, yes, I will do that, or no, I will not do that. That should be sufficient for the believer. So my point here is we've defined a vow and an oath, and keeping a promise, keeping a vow or an oath is of paramount importance in the Word of God. Let me give you just a few examples of some vows and oaths that we see in the Bible. One of the more well-known vows is that of a Nazarite. Um, and we see this in Numbers 6 and uh, Numbers chapter 6. And, uh, and we think that Paul took a, a Nazarite vow. Samson was a Nazarite. Samuel was a Nazarite. And it was a vow that one would tempor- temporarily set themselves apart for the purposes, for whatever God's purposes might be. So we see that in Nazarite. Um, in uh, number six, in Numbers chapter 21, we see an oath. If you will deliver us, we will devote everything to destruction. So there was a, a vow. Um, Jacob makes a very famous vow in uh, Genesis chapter 28. So vows and oaths are very ancient. And perhaps one of the more well-known um, vows we see in First Samuel chapter 1, verse 10. Let me read this passage for you. I think it's important. Um, 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 10. Um, so there's, there's, there's a woman who, her name is Hannah, and she is unable to conceive. And year after year, she's unable to conceive. Her, her husband loves her greatly, um, and yet uh, she is childless. And um, chapter 1, verse Nine goes like this. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. So there's the vow. If you will give me a son, I will dedicate him to the Lord. And he will be, basically, she's saying, he'll be a Nazarite. Um, he will be committed and set apart to the Lord all the days of her life, of his life. And then we uh, look over a little bit later and they've, uh, Hannah has come back to the temple and this is what she says. And she said, Oh my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent to him to the Lord as long as he lives. He is lent to the Lord and he worshiped the Lord there. And so she had a son. His name was Samuel. And after he was weaned, she brought him back to the temple and said, here he is. I am paying my vow. I am now giving him to serve the Lord all the days of his life. So there was a vow made and a vow kept. So now that we have, we're all experts on oaths and vows in the Bible, let's pay attention to our text and try to uh, 
um, figure out what's going on here. So we can break this down into, uh, first of all, vows of men. Men who make vows. So guys, listen up. You ready? It's real simple. Once you make a vow, you don't break it. All right, I'm done. <laughs> well, not really, but... Um, in other words, you might be thinking, well, gosh, really? It's like, yeah. So in other words, be sober, be faithful, be thoughtful. Don't, your speech should not be foolish. So before you get angry and rash and say something stupid, be thoughtful. In fact, Psalm 15.5 talks about um, the person who, who is, it's interesting, who can worship the Lord? And, it, you know, you're saying, well, probably somebody who's clean, somebody who is, you know, righteous, somebody's good, and somebody who even swears to his own hurt. In other words, makes a vow, and even when it doesn't turn out great, or situations change, they do it. If you've been in business and you've put in a bid, and you made a mistake. I did this in business all the time. It's like I gave him a price. And then later I realized, oops, I made a huge mistake. I'm not going to make any. In fact, I'm going to lose money on this deal. Will I swear to my own hurt? In other words, do we make our promise and keep it only when it works out to our benefit? But as soon as it doesn't work out to our benefit, we look at how do I renegotiate this deal? How do and it would be one thing. I mean, there were times I'd even approach the person and say, "Listen, can we re- renegotiate this?" If they said no, I didn't. Like, well, this was the deal we made. Um, if they did, praise God. Um, but a new, but they were letting me out of one. But anyways, do what you say. Faithfulness to one's promise is placed first in the text. Priority of place has purpose here. After this, men, keep your vow. So just real quickly, if you're married, did you promise to love, honor, and respect your your wife? Did you promise to love her as Christ loved the church? I won't say any more. Now, the next part then gets to... Promises made by women, and there are going to be a few categories. Single women, newly married women, widowed women, and married women. So let's talk about them in order. The first one, single women. Now, first of all, you need to realize probably this is a very young, we would call her a girl, um, but I'll just say a young woman, simply because women were married at a very young age, maybe 16, 15, 14, married at a very young age. This would have been... uh, uh, probably referring to somebody who is um, a very young girl. Um, and if she obligates herself, if this, we'll say child, obligates herself to some responsibility that might cause the family harm, it could be voided. Remember, vows were expensive because when you were done, you had to sacrifice an animal. Animals were rare, all right? Well, they were expensive. They were costly. Um, and so... This would have been something that might have been very expensive. I don't know, maybe a uh, 
A case today would be a, a child gets on the internet and racks up all sorts of fees on some sort of video game. Is the parent responsible? I see some of you looking around at each other. <laughs> Is the parent responsible? Well, we're not going to get into case law and modern, but, but the idea there, in, in ancient Israel, if they had video games and the young girls racked up a whole mess of fees, then the husband could void, or the father could void the contract. All right? So, because sometimes a child doesn't know what the family situation is. So it's a very practical thing. All right? Um, so vows could be expensive. And in this way, a father could protect his daughter from a very unwise decision. All right? Maybe she signed up for the military or something, you know, and it's like, I'm going to protect you. You need to go to school first or what have you. But we're talking about a father that expresses his love to his daughter by making sure that she is protected from um, an unwise, an immature decision. All right? So that's the first one, single women. The next one is newly married. So this would be the case of a, of a girl prior to being married makes a vow or an oath, and then while the vow or oath, before it gets fulfilled, um, she gets married. At that point then, as soon as her husband hears of it, he can void it or not. If he doesn't void it, it's good. If he um, decides to void it, then he also could void the, the vow. Um, and again, so a proper vow was one that a husband could support. So here's a, a, so a proper vow would be one that a husband could support. Then we have this issue of widowed and divorced. And basically, they were in the same place as, uh, as men. Um, your vow, your oath stands. You can't break it. So the way it is. And then finally we get to, to married women. The husband also may nullify the, the vow or the oath, but if it's righteous, he would support it. And this would be a, a, a great example is the vow or the oath of Hannah. Hannah vowed their, their son. And Elkanah could have said, no, nope, we're going to avoid that deal. And he would have been justified. But he agreed with it. As soon as he heard of it and he agreed with it, this is the way it's going to be. And so um, they, in mutual agreement, um, went forth and gave their son to be raised in the temple. And he, be, of course, became one of the great leaders of Israel. So there it is. You know everything about vows and oaths in Numbers chapter 30. So Let's go ahead and see if there are any gospel connections and if it has any um, uh, relevance to us today. Um, so let's talk a little bit about family unity. And now what I'm about to say is going to be considered by many as very regressive and um, unenlightened and uh, primitive and, I don't know, caveman-ish. And it does have to do with family unity and family headship. And before I get there, um, let me say that God ordains institutions that reflect himself. One of the great truths of Scripture, and it is a non-negotiable truth in the Scripture, is that 
God is triune, Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. So, let me ask you, who is greater, the Holy Spirit or Jesus? Don't answer, it's a trick question. All right. Who is more God? Nobody. They're equal in essence, but they are different in function, and that is crucial for us to understand who God is. Equal in essence, different in function. God the Father is fully God. God the Son, fully God. God the Holy Spirit, fully God. They are not three gods, and they are not one is lesser than the other. But they don't all do the same thing. God the Father did not die for your sins. And it was Jesus who sent forth, well, Jesus and the Father sent forth the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who convicts us of sin and righteousness and judgment. And so we have this very, very important point. Equal in essence, all of them God. There is not one more important than the other. Read Ephesians chapter 1 if you want to understand the importance of the triune God in the work of your salvation. You are not saved if there is no trinity. It is God who foreordained, or as Paul puts it, predestined us. It is the Son who purchased us, and it is the Holy Spirit who guarantees the purchase. You take one out of it, and you are not saved. Take the Father out, you're not saved. Take the Son out, your sins haven't been paid for. Take the Holy Spirit out, there is no guarantee of your salvation. Read Ephesians 1. So, so important. So, equality in essence, different in function. So, having said that, we should not find it odd that God's two most important institutions, the family and the church, are going to reflect His nature. We are not surprised that the family reflects the Trinity. So, unity, so we deal with this idea of headship. Unity in the family is only preserved by a certain order. And scripture speaks of the headship residing with the husband and the father. In other words, and this is so that life is not to be ruled by competition. It is not to be managed by a struggle for power, resentment over or resentment over one's place. A marriage cannot stand if both husband and wife are making decisions without regard for one another. But just like the truth, the Godhead, so the family functions equal in essence, different in function. God made the family to be a unity, and to be a unity, there has to be a certain order. Now, I know sin complicates this, and many might be thinking in your mind, well, what about this situation? What if? What if? This text is not dealing with the what ifs. We're going to just deal with this. I'm going to be talking super broad and uh, super general. Because what about a single family? What about, you know, where a husband is abusive? What about where, you know, a wife does this or that? What about, okay, um, our text is not dealing with that here. That's 
not another sermon, that's another series. Um, so I'm just going to deal with the basic, the general idea of, it'd be kind of like saying, well, this is how a church is to be run. And we'll talk about that after church today, how a church is to be run. And you can talk about a thousand what ifs. What if the pastor is leading people astray? What if? What if all these things? Well, those are topics to discuss on various days, but today we're going to talk about the general principle. All of the exceptions don't negate the rule. So we're going to talk about the rule. God made the family to be a unity, and there needs to be a certain order for there to be unity. The modern See, we have this idea that if somebody is, has headship, everybody else is oppressed. And that is far from the biblical understanding of things. You see, we're taught that hierarchy cannot exist with passionate affection. That hierarchy must include um, the putting under the foot putting somebody else under my feet. That is just not the biblical position. The, it's, a, it's foreign to Scripture. Scripture says that love and order can exist together. Scripture teaches that hierarchy can exist with tender concern. And in the family, we are going to see that. In the church, we're going to see that. The order of the family is a reflection of the very nature of God. And perhaps we can take this um, one step further. Oftentimes, God is seen as the husband of Israel. When Israel goes astray, she is called an adulteress. And God is the husband. So often what we see is God being the husband of his, of his, of his bride. And certainly we see Christ as the husband of his church. So here we see family order. In fact, chapter verse 16 talks very clearly about family order. These are the statutes that the Lord commanded Moses about a man and his wife and about a father and his daughter while she is in her youth and within her father's house. So there is this structure within the family. But the main part of our text just deals with this idea of telling the truth. Just telling the truth. So one question is, when is a promise not a promise? And perhaps another question is, why is it important for for Christians to be truth-tellers? Why is it important for God's people to be truth-tellers? Is it just a command, tell the truth? God just tells us, tell the truth, because I said so. We could probably argue, well, that would be enough, and it would be. But God generally does not give an imperative like that without it being some sort of reflection of who he is. So let's talk about this idea of being truth tellers, why it's important. It's important to be a truth teller because God is a truth teller. In fact, God himself is truth. Understanding that God is truth is fundamental to understanding God. God is a covenant-making God. A covenant is just that. It is a promise. It is a vow. I swear, God swears, I will do such and such. I swear, this is what's going to happen. And so, in fact, he promised Adam eternal life if he kept the covenant. But the day that you eat of the fruit, you will die. But even when Adam broke the covenant, 
God made a covenant of grace which he would fulf- in which God will fulfill all of, the, all of the conditions. The bottom line is this, folks. We serve a faithful God who swears by himself that he will accomplish our salvation. That's an amazing thing. God swears by himself. We say, I swear to God. I swear on a stack of Bibles. I swear by whatever. When God swears, he swears by himself. I swear by me. Because there's no higher authority. There is no stack of Bibles. There is no other deity. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 18, listen to this. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things... and in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. In other words, God swears to save his people and he swears by himself. There is no higher oath. God is a truth-telling God. He never breaks his oath, even when it's to his own hurt, like the hurt of his son that he, that bore God's wrath, a father's wrath on Calvary, even when it hurts, I uphold what I'm going to say, what I'm promised to do. I just love that. He made a promise since no one greater, he swore to himself. When God made his promise, his covenant with Abraham, Abraham was asleep. Abraham wasn't even involved in the covenant. He was knocked out. God made the covenant. God swore about the covenant. He made it with himself. So then even when Abraham and Abraham's heirs broke the covenant, it was not voided because God said, I didn't make it with you, I made it with me. So we're answering the question, why is it important for God's peoples to be truth tellers? The first reason is because God is a truth teller. And we are images of our Father. That is, we bear His likeness. So when we act in truth, we reflect our Father. How will your neighbors know what God is like? Well, you could simply say, well, they should read their Bible, and they probably should. They would know what God is like. But here's the thing, they're probably not going to. You can give them one. They might read it, but they probably won't. But they will read you. And... They will conclude when they hear your testimony, well, I'm a Christian and I go to the church on Randall Place or I go to this church or that church and I believe in Jesus and I want you to be saved and they will read you. And if and when you lie to them, they will conclude that is what God is like. This is why you hear all the time, I don't go to church because there's too many hypocrites in the church. I think there's a lot of excuses and all that. But nevertheless, we have not done ourselves any favors. Christians have not done themselves any favors by saying one thing and doing another. We have brought shame upon the name of the Lord. 
We have made his name common. We have made his name empty. And they say, what kind of, it's an empty God. And this is why our yes is to be yes and our no is to be no. And this is why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. They should see the, that you bear the image of your heavenly Father. You do bear the image. If you're born again and God is dwelling in you, we will bear the fruit and the image of the God who indwells us. We are images of our Heavenly Father. And so we don't just simply say, do this because you're supposed to, and if you don't, you'll burn in hell. We're saying, follow, be a truth teller because you are reflecting the very image of God who has put His Spirit in you, and now you reflect His nature. This should be very natural. I know our sin nature creeps in, and we all say and do things that we regret. But the general tenor of our life is that we are truthful individuals and we reflect the God who has told the truth. And ultimately, when we come to the person of Jesus, we realize that not only is Jesus truth because he says so, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's telling the truth. When he says, I go away to prepare a place for you, and when I'm done, I'm going to come again and get you so that you may be where I am. He's telling the truth. He also says about God's word that God's word is truth. I've told them of your word. Your word is truth. We can, because Jesus is truth and the words that he speaks are true, we also can find security and comfort in our salvation. You see, our salvation is not dependent on our ability to keep the covenant because we don't, we break it all the time. But on, but, but our salvation is dependent upon the covenant made with Christ in eternity past. I'm sorry, with the covenant made with the Godhead in eternity past to join us to Christ. Read us Ephesians 1.4 and Christ's faithfulness to pay the penalty of our broken vows. Yes, Jesus even paid the penalty of your broken vows. Folks, salvation is because it is, is we have comfort and stability in it because God made the covenant. And it is based upon God paying the price even of our broken vows. That's an amazing thing. I break the vows all the time. And yet the covenant isn't voided. Why? Because our righteousness, because the covenant is made by God on our behalf. So without getting too technical, my, I guess my point here is that we are to be truth-telling people because God is a truth-telling God and we reflect His image. We bear His image. And so we tell the truth and our yes is yes and our no is no, not because it's just some random command that God wants you to do, but it's because we reflect who He is. Remember, God tells the truth. So when you read His Word, His Word is truth. What he said is true. Even when everything around a society says, oh no, it's not true. It's changed now. It's changed. It's different now. Culture's advanced. We're much more enlightened than those old Bronze Age people. 
I don't know. I look around and I don't know that we're that much more enlightened. We kill billions of babies. And we're enlightened? Really? We're the enlightened ones? No fault divorce? We're the enlightened ones? Really? I don't know about that. I think somebody from another culture might come over here and say, I don't know. You guys seem pretty primitive to me. God is truth. His word is truth. So I'll conclude with just a few quick things. First of all, Numbers 30 calls us to be faithful to our words, just as God is faithful to carry out all of his commitments. Second, we are to respect the structures that God has established. God has given us good structures for our good and for his glory. Family, the family order has been given by God's good wisdom. We do not do well to break it. Look at single, single motherhood, children without fathers, but we're the enlightened ones. The majority of people in prison do not have a father in the home, but we're the enlightened ones. I think we would do well to make a priority of God's structure. The church, we don't get to just run church however we want to run it. Who's the most creative? Who can make it the most interesting? No, God has given us an order. Even government. Governing officials are God's, are under God's authority. So we are to respect the structures that God has established, but most of all, and I'll read this quote from um, this commentary, it says, most of all, however, we are to be truly thankful for the faithfulness of our divine husband and father whose enduring commitment to his people in life and in death is the solid anchor for our hope of heaven and our peace in the midst of the wildness of the wilderness world. His yes triumphs over all of our no's and, the, and results in life and peace with him forever. Thanks be to God, therefore, for his enduring faithfulness. Father, we give you praise and we give you